you would, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Continue off where we, uh, where we left off last week. After my freshman year of Bible college, um, and just a reminder, I didn't go to Bible college right off the bat, so this is like three years post-graduation by the time I, I get there. But my, after my freshman year of uh, Bible college, I worked at camp, uh, a camp for high schoolers and middle schoolers called Super Wow. Um, what a name, right? Super Wow. And uh, it was run by the Georgia Baptist Mission Board. I was a, a, a Georgia boy. I had grown up going to uh, kind of things they did throughout the year. I'd never been to their actual summer camp. And so I spent a, a, a summer essentially on an island, Jekyll Island, Georgia. Uh, if you've ever been to Jekyll Island, you know that it's not, not the greatest island. Uh, but it's an island, uh, real kind of dirty looking beaches and whatnot. But it was fun. And... Um, there, there was a small staff. Uh, our camp staff was a small staff, and uh, my job was to teach ninth and tenth graders. And then I also um, basically like kind of did management of the worship service. And so sometimes that meant running cameras. Sometimes it meant like making sure the band was going on and off, and the speaker was going up when they needed to be. And uh, these were big camps. These were uh, typically. Uh, 3,000 students a week. And so if you think about that and you break down the age groups, and I taught Bible to ninth and 10th graders, I had often like a large number of students that I was teaching, sometimes up to, to 500 students. And we had these really big name speakers come in and these big name bands come in and they would play. And um, it, it, it was like, in some ways, being a camp staffer, it's like you had these celebrities, these people who came in to preach and teach, but then you're like this little micro-celebrity. You were the accessible camp staffer, and the students loved you. The students just thought like, man, they're awesome. When I became a student pastor, I took my kids to this summer camp where they worked the camp, the, like the camp counselors like dogs. Like you just feel sorry for them. Not the case for this camp, you know. And so um, that summer, coming, coming out of my freshman year of college, um, I already thought, at that point, I thought I knew everything. I thought my walk was like super close with Jesus and, and like, man, the Lord just got his hand on me. I'm like the anointed one. All these kids want to hear what I have to say. And um, it was stupid. They would say, hey, will you come to our house tonight after worship and hang out? And we would go hang out. And then guess what would happen? They would say, hey, we'd like to book you for our D now next year. Would you like to come? And so I'm thinking, man, I'm going to be this awesome speaker one day. And you see these guys up on stage, and you see them preaching, and you begin to think, that's what I want to do. I want to be on stage. I got back to college after the summer, and um, for, for, for reasons out of my control, I needed to switch churches. I was going to this little church called Bullet Lick Baptist Church. And I was going to switch churches, and I was getting asked to come to, to you know, like, here, Interview for this inter internship, interview for this. And, and Dave Adams, one of my professors, he sat me down. And Dave Adams realized that my head had gotten big and it wouldn't fit through the door. And so he calls me into his office and he says, hey, what's, what's your plan? What are you thinking about doing? I'm like, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm getting asked to go speak at these places. I'm thinking about like trying to be a speaker. And he took a pen out of his pocket and he went... And he just, he just kindly and gently 
rebuked me and reminded me who Jesus was. And then he said this to me. He said, Zach, you need to go find a good, faithful church. And you need to give your life to serving that church. You need to go spend the next 10 years being the student pastor somewhere. And if you only have 20 kids, that's great. You'll make more impact with a small youth group in a local church than you will have running all over the place trying to speak to teenagers. And so I left Bullet Lick Baptist Church, and I went to Buck Run Baptist Church, and I plugged in my life there. And the Lord humbled me. And in, in, that, in that season of plugging in at the local church and serving him and serving Jesus and often doing things where there was nobody saying, hey, come speak. Nobody going, look how great you are. It was the little old ladies who were like, oh, you're sweet. Now, will you go get to bring the groceries in for Wednesday night dinner? You know, it was like, it, it, it was humbling and it was good. And here's what I learned. And I knew this in my heart. I knew this in my head, rather. I, I just had something else going on in my heart. God is the only one who deserves all the glory, honor, and praise. He's the only one. There, there, it, it is not for man to get God's glory, God's honor, and God's praise. It is God's and God's alone. And our text this morning shows us that. It clarifies that. It shows us that here's the big truth. That God deserves all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. So we're going to start in chapter 9, verse 37, right where we left off last week. We just finished the, the transfiguration passage. We're going to revisit that a little bit today. And here's the continuation of the story. On the next day... When they had gone down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and he shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and he healed the boy and gave him back to his father. All were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. 
But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. Now let's jump back up to verse 37 as we begin to take this apart. Now it says, On the next day when they come down from the mountain. So this is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. They had been up on the mountain. They had got to experience, those closest three had got to experience the transfiguration. They got to see God in his glory. Uh, They got to see from uh, heaven, Moses and Elijah come down. And so this is like this masterful thing that they got to experience. And the three of them come down the mountain. And when Jesus, he's not gone long. And when he gets down the mountain, a crowd greets him. A crowd greets him. And notice the language that he says, my only son. I want you to notice this when you read it. My only son. A man from the crowd cry out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he's my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and he shatters him and will hardly leave him. And so, man, we see, we see the circumstance of, of this exorcism that's about to happen. Uh, it's a man who, it's his only son. His son is, so much hope is in one's child. So, so much of, in this culture, in this time, uh, this, this person's child and their future uh, depends on their child taking care of them. When they're older, they love their child, there's a deep relationship with their child, and he's begging. He says, I beg you to look at my son. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. So Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? And so he does this compassionate. We see Jesus over and over and over in the scripture, so compassionate and so kind. Bring your son here. And while while he's bringing the son, like it, it happens again, the demon threw themselves on, threw, threw the kid on the ground and convulsed. But then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and he healed the boy and he gave him back to his father. Now, re- remember, we've talked about the, the spiritual warfare. We've talked about demons. We've talked about Satan. This has been going on in the book of Luke. Uh, we talk about how in our culture, it's hard for us to think about a, a, a demon-possessed person. We, 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 we don't... I, You've got questions about that. We'd like to talk about that. Um, I think of several weeks ago when our family was in New Orleans. Um, we were inside this bookstore. We hear this person crying out. I thought there was a fight in the street. I slipped out of the bookstore and I, I looked. We were in the French Quarter and I looked and I, I see a person. And as soon as I saw him, I think I'm crazy. I said, that's a demon-possessed person. And so I like, watched them turn and, and she was kind of screaming at herself and fighting at the air. All of her hair pulled out of her, her body I actually pulled the boys out of the bookstore and showed them. And uh, I thought better than to try to cast it out. And so I've got a video on my phone if anybody wants to see it. Um, This would have been commonplace. This, This would have happened. There's a spiritual darkness. Jesus came to fight this spiritual battle. And so he rebukes it. And it leaves. And listen to verse 43. 
And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Here's my first big idea. Is that when we truly understand who Jesus is, we marvel at his glory. When we see who he is, when we see, when we see Jesus in all of his majesty, we're astonished at his glory. Peter, James, and John just got to experience in a major way. I'm going to back up in the text just a little bit to Luke chapter 9, verse 28. This is when they go up for the transfiguration. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And his clothing became dazzling white. This is what we see in the Old Testament. Um, we see the Old Testament in, in the, when God revealed himself. We see this is God's Shekinah glory. This is what's referred to multiple times in the Old Testament. This is him revealing of his glory. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. See, you see the word there again. And spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So they were in, they knew what was happening. They knew God's plan, God's redemptive plan for history. They had, at this point, their role had been played in it, and God was revealing what it is that he was doing. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, what did they see? They saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. So when they were up on the mountain, Christ's majesty on high at the transfiguration, Peter, James, and John saw his glory. But now look, this is a, a, right after this, the, uh, the Luke, in, in giving us these scriptures, he's showing us it wasn't just for Peter, James, and John, but that everybody that, that encountered Jesus got to see his glory. This is his, uh, Christ's majesty below, his glory below. They, they come in. And, and they see it. And they marvel at it. They see that he's cast out this demon. And others can't do it. And so here they get to experience the very things that Jesus said when he, he quoted Isaiah and said, Hey, I'm coming to do these things. He comes and he does them. And they see and they reflect on his beauty. But what else happens? They see Christ's glory. They revel in who Christ is. They see his majesty. They see his power. They recognize this is God's son. But don't you think in this moment that that man had to also understand? His disciples aren't like him. His disciples, they, they don't warrant the same amount of glory, the same amount of majesty. Because we begged of them. While he was gone, we found the disciples and we begged of them. And we asked them to cast out the demon, and they could not do it. But Jesus could. Now, if we back up just a little bit, we see that Jesus had commissioned his disciples, and he sent them out to do a number of things in the proclamation of the kingdom of God. But one of them was to cast out demons, and they did it, and they were successful. But all of a sudden, they couldn't do it. Why? Notice the words, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. Every commentary that I read 
pointed out that this word twisted is the same word that we would use as perverted. They perverted God's the, the faith. They, they perverted the faith. They twisted it. What did they pervert? Well, they perverted Jesus. It was, would be Jesus and the power of Jesus. And they took it from faith in Jesus, faith in Christ, and made it faith in themselves and their own ability. Well, you're going to see that pride had begun to creep into their hearts, and their pride was on their own ability and who they were and how important they were in this movement and not who Jesus was. By the way, Mark chapter 9, Mark gives a, a longer account of this. He tells some different details. And he says, Jesus says to his disciples in that one, Hey, this kind's, this kind's cast out by prayer. And that's like a shot in a way to go, no, you've got to pray. You've, it's the Lord who does this. You don't have power. You better pray that God can do it. Man, I think so often... we end up in this place where we don't marvel at God's glory and we try to we like get so impressed with ourselves and we think we're the we think we're the real deal and we're like man look look at what I did you know it's like when you're teaching a kid to ride a bike and he's riding with training wheels and he and he rides and they're so proud of themselves but what do you really know it was the training wheels that held them up. It was the training wheels that kept them from, from falling. We so often get like that, that we, we marvel at ourselves. We get, get prideful. Uh, it, it, it boosts us up. It, it gets into our hearts, and it will be a killer. You know, I often say this statement at our church. And it's this, if not in the power of the Holy Spirit, then in the power of who? That's a question that if you've been around for a while, you've heard me ask that question over and over and over. If not in the power of the Holy Spirit, then in the power of who? Well, the answer to that is if you're not doing something as a Christian, as the, in the power of the Holy Spirit, that means you're doing it in the power of yourself. Which means that you're trusting in yourself and your own ability more than you're trusting in God's ability to go before you, to fight for you, to move in you, and work in you. And so, they've twisted this. They've perverted this. Who, who, who was their faith in? It wasn't in Jesus. It wasn't in God. They were trusting in their own power. So here's the point. Truly understand who Jesus is. You marvel at his glory. You see him and who he is. And your faith is in him. Have faith in Jesus. Have faith that the Holy Spirit is who God says he is. And he works how he says he does. In Mark 9, I, I find these words. as I, I, I read the different accounts in the Gospels. In Mark 9, as Jesus is, is approaching, uh, the man approaches Jesus about his son and and, and, and he's saying, hey, he's begging, hey, save my son. And he says, if you can. Jesus replies, all things are possible for one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And this should be the way that our life is. Because listen, our faith will not be perfect. 
we will struggle in our faith. Pride will creep in. Sin will creep in. And a constant prayer of us should say, God, I believe. And where I'm struggling, Father, help my unbelief. Help me not to, to have, think of myself as the help, but to think of you as the helper. That the Holy Spirit is the helper. And over and over and ask yourself the question, am I operating in the power of the Holy Spirit? Am I trusting in God or am I trusting in myself? Continue in the text. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, now, you've got to catch this. Because they're all marveling. They're going, ooh, ah, look at God's glory. Jesus is so awesome. And Jesus is realizing what they're doing is, oh, they don't even know. They've got it wrong in their minds of how all this is going to turn out. And he, he pulls his disciples aside. Remember, I told you last week, so much of, of what we're seeing in Luke now is going from Jesus' kind of public ministry to his ministry to his disciples. We've got a key in now on what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And he said, let these words sink into your ears. Let this sink in. I'm going to tell you this. This is being revealed to you over time. Let this sink in. Begin to grasp it. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This guy that everybody's seeing, his majesty, his glory, they're marveling at. A lot of these same folks are about to want to kill me. These people are fickle. Right? This is, I came with a point, I'm appointed to die, I'm about to be delivered. But it says that they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. And so you're going to see this over and over and over. It's this revelation that God is doing to, uh, through Jesus to the disciples to show him his plan. So that in the end, it, they're going to go, ah, oh, it all makes so much sense. Here's the next thing that I want you to see. This is the big idea. Is that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so, as they're all marveling at Jesus, as they're all looking and going, wow, this guy is awesome. Let's elevate him. Jesus says to them, no, guys, I'm about to be delivered that's what's happening here. I'm, I'm on my journey to the cross. I'm on my journey to Jerusalem. Moses and Elijah in the transfiguration, you see that they know it. They know that, hey, he is taking a turn here in his ministry. And he is headed towards Jerusalem. He's headed towards the end. He's headed to where he will be crucified. I want you to understand the gospel is the greatest act of service ever done. Jesus says, I, I, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he defines what that means as he said serve, and to give my life for a ransom for many. He's saying my greatest act of service is that you have a sin debt. The wages of sin is death. 
We as people are fallen, broken people. We are sinners by nature. Our nature is to, to do for ourselves, and in the doing for ourselves, it sins against everybody else. And so, in our hearts, we don't lean towards service, we lean towards being served. We don't, we don't lean towards saving other people, we lean towards saving ourselves. And this is the opposite. This is not what Jesus did. He came to serve and give his life for ransom for many. And the ultimate way that he did that, like we see his acts of service, we see the things that he did, but ultimately the ultimate acts of service is what he did on the cross. That he went to the cross, accused by the, the Roman government, accused by the Jewish people, he went to the cross to die. And in his death, be the sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, that he would take on our sin and our shame, and he would take the punishment for us. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the ultimate act of service. That, hey, you deserve this. I'm taking this punishment for you. Therefore, you now can be in right relationship and standing with God. This is the gospel. This is what Jesus did, and it's the, the, the act of service. This is who he is. This is the mission that he's on. Meanwhile, look at the mission that the disciples are on. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is the least among you is the one who is great. The next thing I would show you is that the greatest thing that you can aspire to be is a servant. Culturally, children were least in the culture. They... they um, they were, they were put down. They were kept out of the way. And especially when we're talking within the religious circles. We're talking about at the temple and at the synagogue. You actually can read in Jewish writings that, that for, for a priest to spend his time with children was a waste of time. And so here he catches them in this argument. And in this argument to go, who's the greatest? Now, obviously... The fact that Peter, James, and John got to go up and to see the, tra tra you know, the transfiguration happen, and then these other disciples struck out on casting the demon, right? It caused some tension, right? You've got these three, and so, man, there's an argument among the three. We, we even see it in their writings in Scripture, like even on the race to the tomb where John's like, smoked them, right? You... you you see it, there's a rivalry that's come. There's pride that's, that's crept in. And so he's saying, whoever receives this child, whoever receives the one who's the least in the king, kingdom is, is greatest. You receive a child in my name. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. I'll tell you something that I've just learned to look for in leaders. Those who have time for children. 
You know, at our church, it's, it's one of the things that, like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of adults that I don't know their names in our church, but I want to know every kid's name. Every single kid's name in our church. It breaks my heart if I'm like, I don't know that kid's name. I want to know, like, I have to, my boys can tell you, I ask them, hey, what's that kid's name all the time? I want to know the kids in our church. I believe in the kids in our church. I, I think if we look at Jesus' ministry and we want to lead like Jesus led, we're going to invest in our children. We're going to prioritize our kids. We're going to love them well. Look around at the number of kids in this worship service. Look at the, around the number of kids. When we do a baptism on a Sunday, the number of kids that are in our church. Man, kids are a part of the church. And the church is failing in its mission when it's failing to love and disciple its kids well. I look back and I see a, a church member who's a teacher. Works at a school. And every time I go to her school and I'm with her, I see her know Hundreds and hundreds of kids' names. It blows my mind. And I watch those in our church who work with kids and love kids, pour their lives into kids, the weight, of the, the weight that they feel as they minister to kids. It is what gospel-loving, Jesus-proclaiming people do. And so we're going to protect our kids. We're going to disciple our kids. We're going to love our kids. We're going to invest in our kids. You know... When we began to think through our values at a, as a church, and our values are these proclaim, disciple, serve, and multiply. One of the churches that I had been exposed to that I was just really impressed with was this church in Brazil. Uh, it's called Nova Igreja Batista. I don't even know what that means in, in Portuguese other than I think it's like New Baptist Church. I guess I know all of it. Uh, anyway, new, and, and I don't know. Anyway... Big church, mega church. And I remember when they first started, I was in ministry, and this church blew up. And there, there's this massive stage. We, our, our, our church, that I, our sending church, Buck Run, we would go and do missions there. And one of the things that just impressed me was that in their church, if you served on a ministry team that served on the stage, you could only serve on the stage a certain length of time before you had to rotate off. And when you rotated off, you rotated onto the janitorial team. And so if you were on the stage for any period of time, you had to rotate on the janitorial team and you had to go clean the toilets. Um, when we first started our church, we had some, some folks who wanted to be in, on the worship team. But our, our and they, they, they were in the beginning. But one of our greatest needs has always been kids' ministry. We have, like, in the beginning, like, you guys would not believe. Like, you've got who we would have serving in kids. I mean, I think about these awesome guys, Ben Crawford, uh, Diego Bichelle. Like, these, these guys are, like, 23, 24-year-old college students back there. Like, so uncomfortable. So, like, just get me in the sound room, whatever. Serving in kids and loving on kids. And so we've kind of had the, 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 like, the view that, man, if you're going to serve on this stage, we need you to serve in kids too. And, and I haven't done it in a while, but multiple times in the life of our church, I have, I have not preached on Sunday morning in order to serve in kids' ministry. And I would just say to, to those of you who, who 
week in and week out are in our kids' ministry wiping noses, feeding Cheerios, and teaching them Bible stories. You are doing an important ministry. And, and, and it, it matters. Now, it's not the only way we serve. Like, we, we've realized we've grown to the place in the church. Like, it's probably like when, when somebody doesn't want to be in kids and they're not good with kids. Like, it's great. You can serve somewhere else. Like, we're, we're there. But you got to realize, we, we want the people who are gifted in service and kids, gifted in whatever. We want you serving in your gifts. But you need to realize there is nothing above or below your pay grade. There's nothing that God is going to ask you to do in his kingdom that you are too good for. I'm too good to serve there. I'm too gifted to serve there. Or man, I'm not gifted enough to serve there. All those are areas of pride. And listen, pride creeps in. You see it creep in here. You see it creeps into the disciples. It's crept into their hearts and they're going, look at me. Who's better, me or you? Pride is a killer. Pride is a killer. And here's what it does. It brings on comparison. It brings us to go, look at me, now look at you. And often, in the kingdom of God, we say, look at that church, look at our church. We'll celebrate what our church is doing, but not celebrate what God's doing at that church. Or, we'll celebrate what's happening here for this, these people, I don't like those people, in comparison. And then, then what happens, from comparison, it goes to condemnation. And so you look, and, and, and when you compare, then you condemn, and you go, oh, they're not as good as me. Or, also pride, the reverse of that happens, and you compare and go, I could never be that. And you begin to think too low of yourself. Pride happens in both forms. You think too highly of yourself, or you think too lowly of yourself. And, and the reality is, you're taking your mind off of Jesus. That's the reality. And so comparison uh, leads to condemnation. Condemnation is criticism that you begin critical about everything. Often when somebody comes to our church from an, another church, and it feels like, oh, we're just going to swap sheep. And somebody comes, and they begin to complain about their church. And I'm like, man, I, you're talking about a friend. And I'd go to his church all day long. And I realized, like, he's not a perfect pastor, but guess what? I'm not a perfect pastor. And I realized that's not a perfect church, but this isn't a perfect church. And so if you're going to be critical about everything that they're doing over there, it's a ticking time bomb until you're critical about everything over here. Both churches have, guess what, sinners in them, right? And so here's what I would tell you. Hey, land in a church... Stop thinking too highly of yourself. Think about Jesus and plug in and serve. Plug in and aspire to be a servant. And I'll tell you, it's the people who are serving who are typically the most grateful. It's the people who are serving who typically have the, the least amount of complaints. It's the people who are uh, uh, serving that, that typically have the joyful spirits and see Jesus for who they are. But in our consumeristic culture, us going to church and like thinking, hey, those, it's a dog and pony show. It's, it's pomp and circumstance. Like, no, we need to rid that out of the American church. And we need to show up and go, no, we are gospel people. Who, who, we are sinners who've been saved by God's grace. Therefore, let us be gracious people.
And so we're going to glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ. We're going to say, we're going to take his call to make disciples serious. We're going to take the call to be uh, servants serious. And then we're going to multiply to the nations. You know, the next thing that pride does is it, it, it brings in a level of competition. Our church planted a church this year. Isn't that awesome? I went to a church for several years and they never planted a church. Our church is better than their church. Their church planted five churches and our church only planted one church. Whatever thing, whatever metric we're measuring, like, look, listen, if it is happening for the kingdom of God, it is for the glory of God. And we ought to rejoice in the glory of God. We, we ought to rejoice when God's kingdom is expanding and God's kingdom is moving. And so we've got to kill pride. And how do we kill pride? Well, he just told us. Just back up a little bit. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when, the, when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And so you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow him. It is the act of dying to oneself daily that kills pride. Verse 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone else casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop, stop him because he does not follow with us. See, it's competition. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who's not against you is for you. Here's the next big idea, is that we glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ. That is our mission statement as a church. We glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ. And there was another person who was proclaiming God, was casting out demons in Jesus' name. They were, they were proclaiming who Jesus was. They were glorifying God by doing it. And his disciples wanted a competition to go, hey, but they're not doing it the way we do it. It doesn't look like we do it. It's not, it doesn't have the, the, the same rhythms and, and beats. And they don't have lights or smoke or what, whatever. The th or they do have lights or smoke. Like whatever the thing is, whatever the little thing we want to nitpick is. When, when in, in reality, like, no, they're preaching the gospel. Now, there's obviously very strong warnings in Scripture about those who don't preach the gospel. There's strong warnings to, for the church to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We, we see in places where, where, where there are strong teachings about those who teach that false doctrine. But we're talking about the good churches. We're talking about the churches that are proclaiming the, the, the gospel. Here's just where we got to get. That there is no rivalry in the kingdom of God. That it has to be about Jesus. And we've got to be willing to lock arms. Listen, we, we need to be praying for our neighborhoods, our communities. 
And, and when a church pops up over here, over there, and we see, we see good gospel work being done, we need to pull for the kingdom of God to expand. We need to be glad for the guys who do it. I'll tell you, I get text every Sunday morning. Pastor of Christ Church in Windsor. Windsor Community Church. Um, a guy down in Frederick. Sometimes guys in Loveland. Sometimes guys up north. The text and say, hey, praying for you this morning. Pull, pulling for you. Praying for Overland. There's a beauty that happens when the church is, is seeking for the kingdom of God. Not their own brand expansion, but the expansion of the kingdom of God. And that is who we need to be. I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an effect here that, that applies to us multiplying and planting other places. It's not about growing this little congregation and adding on to this building and seeing how many people we can collect here and seeing how great we can make our worship services and how great we can make our kids' ministry, but it is about the proclamation of the gospel to the neighborhoods around us. And the more churches we have doing it, the more people we have doing it, the more Christians, the more disciples we've made, the more Christians who are pro proclaiming the gospel, the more God's kingdom will be made and the more he will make things new. So we glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ. So today, I want us to be a church that doesn't marvel at man but marvels at who God is. And that we would be a church that would embrace the truth that it is God that deserves all the glory, God, all the honor, and all the praise. So, Father, we come to you today, Lord, thank, thankful for your word. And, Lord, whatever pride we have, whatever religious, zealous pride we have, Lord, would you strike it from us? Would we not be a people who seek to do things in the power of ourselves, but, Father, that we would yield, we would die to ourselves, and we would trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to move and to work. Or we'll be a church that proclaims, that's unashamed of the good news of the gospel and proclaims the good news of the gospel. And, Lord, as people hear it, would, they then be, would your majesty then be revealed to them? Lord, today there's people in the room who, who don't have faith, who don't have belief. Lord, today would you help them in your unbelief. Lord, there's people in the room today who have never seen your glory. They've never seen how good you are. They've never understood what it meant that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So, Lord, today let them see the weight of their sin, let them see the depths of their sin, and let them see your goodness, your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness, your love for us. And, Lord, let they see your majesty and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.